this week we're going to wrap up uh, this conversation series as we uh, hear in this conversation Jesus share one of his, which is perhaps his most popular parable, and that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Our text this morning can be found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. I invite you to turn with me there. If you're using one of the, the church's Bibles there in the, in the chairs, uh, you can find the passage on page 869. This Samaritan man that we're going to uh, meet this morning is uh, perhaps one of the most famous men of all time. He's talked about across uh, national borders. Uh, he is honored as an ideal for every man to aspire to, both Christian and non-Christian alike. He is, in fact, the good Samaritan, and he doesn't exist. <laughs> Ironically, he never has existed. He was not a real man, uh, but a person that Jesus made up uh, to communicate a point. But nevertheless, there's something important for us to see. So let's look to our, our passages before us this morning, starting in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance... A priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The man said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this parable and the many other parables that you've given us in your word and the lessons that they teach, the purposes of them that uh, we can learn and understand. And so I pray that as we unpack this parable and this conversation between our Lord Jesus and this lawyer, God, that you would uh, direct and lead my words, uh, that they would be true to your word and true to the purposes of this story that our Lord would share, had shared. I pray that you'd be glorified and honored in the time that we have yet before us today. Our distractions might not keep us from hearing from you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Samaritan's Purse is a non-denominational Christian organization that specializes in the poor in helping the poor and needy around the world today. If you went on their website and clicked uh, about and wanted to learn a little bit more about it, they would say, the story of the Good Samaritan found in Luke chapter 10 gives a clear picture of God's desire for us to help those in desperate need wherever we find them. After describing how the Samaritan rescued a hurting man from others who had passed uh, by, 
Jesus told his hearers, go and do likewise. For over 40 years, Samaritan's Purse has done our utmost to follow Christ's command by going to the aid of the world's poor, sick, and suffering. If you happen to be in Downers Grove and needed to find your way to the hospital for some reason or another, you might find yourself at Advocate Good Samaritan's Hospital. And hopefully you guys don't have to find yourself there. But you wonder where they come up with their name. The Scary Mommy blog site online has an article up or a blog post that includes five reasons to be a good Samaritan because that's what we need to do. Furthermore, a lot of countries around the world have what are known as Good Samaritan laws. They're laws that are put in place to protect the quote-unquote Good Samaritan, someone who's lending a helping hand to assist someone in peril or otherwise incapacitated. These laws exist to encourage people to leap to action rather than cowering back in a time of need, uh, being fearful of lawsuits and other legal and financial repercussions for their actions. Good Samaritan laws. The Good Samaritan has definitely become a cultural staple here in America and around the world. Some social justice groups will reference the story of the Good Samaritan in support of whatever their cause may be, uh, seeing uh, cross-cultural engagement with different ethnic groups, and they'll say, see, the Good Samaritan did it, so should we. And these are all great things to take out of Uh, this parable. And it's really, it's a wonderful thing that this parable has spurred hundreds and thousands of people around the world to lend a helping hand to others in times of need, as a matter of fact, complete strangers. But sadly, these applications are really flowing out of a misunderstanding, or at least a partial understanding of what this parable's intended purpose was to be. Like many, if not all of Jesus' parables, He is dealing here with salvation and not just serving others. The partial understandings limit this parable to Jesus' purpose being about the moralism of being kind to strangers. To be like the Samaritan, as if Jesus made up the parable just for the sake to teach us to be kind. But is that really what Jesus is dealing with in this particular passage? Because see, when organizations like Samaritan's Purse and these others look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, they always start in verse 30, when Jesus starts sharing the story. And they leave out the context of why Jesus is sharing the story. So if you look at verse 25, a man stands up to put our Lord Jesus to the test. This man's a lawyer or an expert of the law, someone who no doubt would have known the law forward and back and even shared in the responsibility of teaching the law to other Jews. And so his attempt to trap Jesus starts by asking the question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he doesn't ask the question with a desire to understand eternal life or to truly find an eternal life, but actually what we're going to learn is this man had already had the confidence that he had obtained eternal life. And so he's trying to, to trap Jesus. He's being malicious and divisive in asking his question. And so Jesus knowing the man's heart, uh, sets him up to learn a valuable lesson about salvation. See, uh, knowing that the man was well-versed in the Old Testament law, Jesus sets that as the footing for the rest of the conversation. Masterfully, as Jesus always does, he answers the question with a question of his own. What does the law say? How do you 
understand it. And the man responded by quoting two Old Testament passages. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. These come from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, which is known as the Shema Yisrael, meaning hear Israel, and from Leviticus 19.18, to love your neighbor as you'd love yourself. And in these two passages, or these two statements, the entirety of the law could be summarized. Love God and love your neighbor. And so the man was definitely correct, and he knew he was correct in his answer to Jesus. The Shema from Deuteronomy 6 is commonly known even to us today. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's something that we recite. And as kids, we memorize it. And this man would have been very familiar with it. These verses that he quotes are uh, very popular and part of uh, their prayers that the devout Jews would say in the morning, in the evening, and would have been taught to say before they would go to bed. So he knew these very well. And he had confidence that these were the correct answer to Jesus' question. What does the law say about how to inherit eternal life? But that wasn't enough for the man. Because he answered it and Jesus says, you're right, do this and you'll live. And that could have been the end of it. But the man wanted to justify himself. So he asked who his neighbor was. And it was in this question that he really starts to set that trap for Jesus. But Jesus knew it. See, it's hard to trap a man who knows your thoughts and intentions. It's impossible to trap God, right? And so this guy, he had another thing coming for him. Uh, But Jesus, what he has done so far is he's set this man's footing on something that he had confidence in. The law. His observation of the law. This man was confident in it. He had placed his trust in it. And now what Jesus is going to do in the parable is he's not addressing the entirety of the man's first question of how do I find salvation, but he's dealing with a heart issue here. The part of this man that wants to justify himself. And Jesus is going to address this man's self-justification, his pride. And at this point, all that Jesus has to do is shake this lawyer's footing just a little bit. He's set it on the law. He's confident. Now he's got to shake it up just a little bit to show this man that the footing that he has is not reliable for eternal life. He needs this man to see this barrier in his own heart. His pride. He's going to expose his pride. See, Jesus could have done it pretty harshly and called out the lawyer for thinking he was so puffed up. And how could you think that by observing the law, you'd uh, obtain eternal life? Don't you realize that the law is, uh, it's not possible for you to fulfill the requirements of the law. It's too much. But instead, Jesus does it in such a delicate way with the goal to win over the man's heart. See, Jesus knew the intent of the second question, who is my neighbor? That it was meant for the intention of justifying self not understanding salvation. See, the man wanted to be able to say when Jesus would affirm who his neighbor was, yeah, look, I've done that. I've uh, fulfilled the law. I've loved God. I've loved my neighbor. I've earned myself salvation. I have inherited eternal life because I've done what the law has required of me. 
And it was a very prideful approach to the matter of salvation, a works-based salvation, and that the man could be deceived to think that he had in fact earned or merited his own eternal life, his own salvation. So Jesus is going to help expose this man's pride so that he'd see it for himself. And so Jesus tells a story. And this is something that we don't commonly do today, right? When you're asked a question, our first, our first inclination is always to, to answer that question, to have the answer. And, and Jesus just so creatively tells this story. Jesus, being a Jew, is telling a Jew a story about a Jew who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, where he happened across some thieves who beat him to the point of death, stripped him of all of his possessions, including the clothes on his back, and they left him for dead. Here's the problem. And so Jesus is setting a stage for the hook. Because Jesus is going to help to define for this man who his neighbor is. So we have the problem laid before us. And now we have a Jewish man half dead on the side of the road on his way to Jericho. And so first, Jesus says, conveniently, by chance, a priest was walking by and he saw the man lying half dead on the side of the road. And he saw him and he passed by on the other side. You can imagine being this lawyer as Jesus brings up the priest. Thinking, oh, okay, the priest, certainly the priest will do the right thing. The priest is going to know. And Jesus says he passes by. Hmm, okay, maybe a little plot twist there. Didn't see that one coming. And so Jesus goes on and says, you know what? There was also a Levite. A Levite was traveling down that road, and he saw the man half dead on the side of the road, and he just passed on by on the other side. And you can almost imagine being or seeing this uh, lawyer sitting there talking with Jesus, starting to fidget in his seat, shift his weight a little bit, and start to get a little confused because you have a priest and a Levite, the two people that he no doubt would have assumed would have known the right thing to do, would have known who their neighbor was, and would have done the right thing, and yet they've both passed on by. We still have a problem. Jesus is making it clear that somebody is going to come to the aid of this half-dead Jew on the side of the road, but who's it going to be? And the last person they would have ever assumed was the Samaritan. The Samaritan who comes by and has compassion. And so what Jesus has done is he has presented the creme de la creme of the Jewish community, the priest and the Levite. The people who knew the law the best. Certainly they would have known who their neighbor was. Certainly they would do what would glorify and honor God. They're the cream, the creme de la creme. They are the, the supreme, the ideal for the Jewish community to follow. And what he has done is he has shown that who's expected to be the most holy, the most devoted to the law, yet neither of them stopped and helped the man. They didn't show compassion on their fellow Jew. But a Samaritan comes in and does the right thing. And before we go and we try to justify the priest and the Levite, as many people do, I, I remember in Sunday school classes people saying, well, the, the priest probably passed by for this reason or that. I was listening to a sermon by John MacArthur this last week on this passage, and and he said, yeah, I was dealing with that and wondering, yeah, why would, why would they pass by? And he's mulling over the text, and then he says, they weren't real men. Jesus made them up for the sake to prove something. 
that the most holy, the most devoted, didn't do what they were expected to. Certainly that lawyer would have sat there listening and said, the priest, the priest will do the right thing. And so Jesus here begins to expose the pride of this man, that one, his Jewish heritage, and the prestige of the titles of priest and Levite, they didn't get it. And he's knocking at this pride that this lawyer, this expert of the law would have had. He's saying, listen, that's not what it's about. It's not about having the title. It's not about being this way or that. It's not about the, the fake holiness that we can put on externally. But it's about the actions that prove what's true in our heart. See, the Samaritan came and he first had compassion on this injured man. And then he went and he, he helped him and he cared for him. Remember here that Jesus is just trying to shake up that footing just a little bit. To make this man feel a little uneasy, a little unsure, to start to think, to get the wheels turning in his head. Wait a minute, what about? That's what Jesus is trying to do. He wants this man to see for himself his own pride. Because remember, this man was trying to justify himself. I've loved my neighbor. I've done what the law requires. And instead of Jesus saying, hey, listen, You've failed because of this. You haven't loved your neighbor. You have Jesus is coming and he's presenting a scenario in which the man might reflect for himself and see, wait a minute. I, I haven't loved my neighbor as I should. I haven't fulfilled the law. And this is true for every person to find salvation. Each of us who are here who found salvation in the Lord, there has to be a moment where we repent of our sins, and to repent is to, to change one's mind. And a lot of times what we think of repentance is we think of confession, saying our sins to someone, confessing them to God, confessing them to a friend or a family member. But confession isn't repentance. Confession is at best part of repentance. But repentance is that change of mind in which we recognize our sin for what it is. We agree with God about our sinfulness. That we look at it and we see it, in light of who God is, that we wouldn't say, hey, look, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. But that we would say, what a wretched person I am. I have sinned. And every person, young or old, who wishes to find salvation has to have that moment in which they recognize their own shortcomings, their own failures, where they fall on their face and say, I, I haven't done it. I haven't fulfilled it. I've come up short. I've sinned against a holy God. I need salvation. I need forgiveness of my sins. And so, as believers today, we remember that moment, perhaps, where, where that made sense to us, where we had that come-to-Jesus moment. We, we realized that we were sinners. But what an example, too, that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ today that it's easy to go and to look at a sinful world and your neighbors, your peers, your co-workers who are clearly living lives that are not glorifying to God. They're, they're living in, in just robust sin. 
And it's easy to, to point to those things and say, well, you shouldn't do this. This is sinful. And it's easy to go and point the finger directly at the sin and say, see, this is where you're screwing up. But there's a lesson that we can learn as a kind of a secondary lesson in this passage that what an opportunity we have to help other people recognize their sin for themselves. Instead of us being the hypocritical, judgmental Christians that Christianity has kind of adopted that reputation, we, we care for, we're patient, we're creative in the ways that we're able to share the gospel message that might help assist people in recognizing their own sin, seeing how they've come short. That as Jesus, in this passage, has made this Jewish lawyer, this expert of the law, his own judge, we're able to help other people see for themselves just how sinful they are. So Jesus is shaking this footing by just, he's exposing the pride in this man's heart. This internal self-justification and pride that he has. Jesus is going to bring that to light. And he's going to go on, he's going to continue to, to shake up that footing a little bit by expanding this man's neighborhood. See, this man wanted to justify himself in his neighbor. And that's because the Jews, they had established who their neighbor really was. Their neighbor, as the law referred to, they believed were other Jews. They didn't believe that the law extended to the rest of the Gentiles of the time, so they, they were obligated to, they, they just felt they were obligated to love other Jews. So when the lawyer says that the law requires that someone love God and love his neighbor, what the lawyer is really saying is, well, the law says we should love God and love other Jews. That's what the affirmation that he was looking for in Jesus, so that then his self-righteousness, he could say, well, I've loved God and I've loved other Jews, therefore I fulfilled the law. But instead, Jesus expands his neighborhood just a bit farther than he had anticipated, or I'm sure than he would have liked, and Jesus extended it even to the Samaritans. And now to fully grasp the weight of the parable, we have to fully grasp the weight of the character. See, the priest and the Levite, we're pretty familiar with. They're the Jewish leader, leaders. They were experts of the law. They were self-righteous at times. We're familiar with the priest and the Levite. But if you were to Google today a Samaritan, the first thing that Google would say is a kind and generous person. See, the world has come to take on the definition of the Samaritan just as somebody who's nice. Somebody who lends a helping hand. And you miss the gravity of what Jesus is communicating here. Because when Jesus went through those three men, the priest who passed by, the Levite who passed by, and then when Jesus said the Samaritan, you could have felt the, the air get sucked out of the room. People were like, <gasps> the Samaritan. The Samaritan wasn't just some random person that Jesus was making up as he went through and was like, all right, well, let's see, huh? We got a priest, a Levite, like he's about to tell a bad church joke. Ah, we'll throw a Samaritan in there. That, that works. Jesus is strategic in who he picks. And that's because the Samaritans and the Jews were enemies of each other. One commentator uh, put it this way. The Samaritans were the most inveterate foes of the Jews. 
What he means when he says that the Samaritans were the most inveterate foes of the Jews is that they were the most hated enemies, the most hated foes, and the least likely for that to ever change. They despised each other. And to call someone a Samaritan in the Jewish community was the highest of insults. You Samaritan. Oh, you wouldn't. I think of uh, when the Jews in John chapter 8 accused Jesus of being a Samaritan. Isn't it true that we can call you a Samaritan? And then they called him demon-possessed. It's like to call someone a Samaritan is bad enough, but to be a demon-possessed Samaritan? The gravity of what the Jews are referring to our Lord as. So what's with all the bad blood? Why do the Jews and the Samaritans hate each other so much? I know we covered this briefly a couple weeks ago when we dealt with the woman at the well, but in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came in and they conquered the northern kingdom. The kingdom of Israel had been divided at this time, and the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern uh, kingdom. And they deported many of the Jews, and those who were left, uh, now as the Assyrians came in, they intermarried. So the Jews and the Assyrians were intermarrying, and as they had children, it created this sort of a a half-breed of Jew, as the, the Jews would look at it. So they had not been faithful. The, the, the faithful Jews of the southern kingdom looked to the, the Samaritans, the people in Samaria, and say, you've become a half-breed of Jew. You're no longer a true Jew. You've become tainted with the Gentiles. And so these Jews, these, this half-breed of Jew, per se, from Samaria, would want to come down and worship in the temple. And the Jews wouldn't allow that to happen. And then there was a, a priest from up in Samaria that wanted to serve in the temple in Jerusalem. And he was kicked out. You can't do that. And so what happened is, in Samaria, they set up a new place of worship. They had their own kind of version of the Septuagint, or the, the law. And this created this divide between the Jews in the southern kingdom and these other Jews that are now known as the Samaritans who are in Samaria. And both groups claimed to be the faithful and pure worshipers of God. And as such, this rift grew between them. And then you, have, you throw in some pharisaical zeal. You throw in some, uh, this desire to just obey the law and missing the purpose of the whole thing. And, and now you have this great divide in these two groups have become enemies. And you'll notice that even in this conversation, we get a glimpse into just how badly the Jews hated the Samaritans. See, when Jesus asked at the end of the, the story, which of these three, when I, uh, uh, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, the, the religious leader couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He said it was the one who showed mercy. It was the one who showed mercy. They despised the Samaritans so much he couldn't even bring the name to his lips to admit that it was the Samaritan who had been the neighbor. Talk about a humbling moment for that lawyer. So this lawyer, he had been looking all this time to when he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He was looking for Jesus to define somebody else. Who's my neighbor? 
who his neighbor ought to be. But Jesus flipped it on its head, and instead of defining who his neighbor is, he defines who he should be as a neighbor. And John MacArthur, in his sermon, he said, See, it's not about who is a neighbor who is qualified to be loved, but it's about who is a neighbor who loves in an unqualified way. It's not about who that person is, it's about who we are. And that's what Jesus is calling this lawyer to, to reveal to him the high standard of the law. When the law says to love your neighbor as yourself, the law is not talking about just other Jews. The law is talking about all people, even your enemies. In modern times, you might substitute a Packers fan as the Samaritan. Bears and Packers played this last week, and unfortunately the Bears lost. But the rivalry, a Packers fan? To love a Packers fan? How, what? How could you do that? The harshest of enemies. But in reality, and seriously, Jesus has expanded the neighborhood. He said, listen, your neighbor's not just that person that that you see eye to eye with. Your neighbor isn't just that other believer that that you connect with at, at work because you guys, you get it. You feel bonded together. What Jesus is saying is to fulfill the requirements of the law is to love all people your enemy included, as yourself. And I think of his teaching where he says that, hey, isn't it it's great to love people who love you, right? I'm paraphrasing. The world does that. that. That's easy. But as my disciples, you love your enemy as yourself. You do the hard work of loving that person that you just mm, can't stand them. Their name comes up and you're thinking about them right now in your head and your blood starts pumping just a little bit faster when you think of that person. They aggravate you. They just, they just get on your nerves. You believe that they exist to make your life miserable. That's who we love. That's what the law requires of us. To love them as you love yourself. See, Jesus here is shaking up that footing. He's exposed the man's pride. And what he's doing now is trying to show this lawyer just how short he's come of really fulfilling the law, of really loving his neighbor. And then just to perhaps rub some salt in the wound a little bit, just to make things really sink in, Jesus enhances his standards. See, not only did the Samaritan come, not only did the Samaritan have compassion on the man, but then he cared for the man. He proved to be the neighbor to the injured Jew, and he did some things. He didn't just say, oh man, I'm sorry, you've come on a rough day. I, I, I hope things turn around for you. I, I really hope you start feeling better. This man stopped on his journey. He saw the man, had compassion, and he knelt down. He, he bound his wounds and poured oil and wine on his wounds. Okay, So to give some, some clarity, this man's not 
probably carrying around a package of Band-Aids in his carrying sack. When this man bound his wounds, he probably had to tear his own clothing to wrap them up. The oil and the wine that he was carrying were, were common things that travelers would have with them. and it was, He'd carry it for the sake of cooking his own food while he was traveling. So it's likely that this Samaritan, this enemy of the Jew, had compassion on him, tore his own clothes, probably got his hands a little dirty, bound the wounds, used his own supplies to cook his own food, to care for the man. Then he, he picks him up and he puts him on his own animal, which means that this guy's not riding the animal anymore. He's committed himself to walking whatever the rest of the distance was. And he takes this man to an inn, and we think of the inn as like this like cute little establishment that they might come to, a flickering light that says, come on in. We think of the days in and the holiday in that we might stay at today. And that's just not really the case. These inns were, they were tough. These are the places where those who were traveling, they, they'd come in to escape the burglars in the night. Sometimes the burglars themselves would come and stay in these places. It's almost like thinking a little bit more of a, a tavern type thing than, than a comfortable inn. It wasn't the nicest of places. And he goes in and he stays with the man overnight, caring for him. And who, who knows what all that entailed. And the next day, he gives some money to the innkeeper. And, you know, scholars today, they differ a little bit on how much that money was worth at the time. But I'm going to give you a picture of where they, their, their parameters. On one side, they say it was enough money to cover the care for this man for two weeks. To the higher end, it was enough money to care for this man for two months. So somewhere between two weeks and two months is how much money he gives this innkeeper. And it doesn't matter if you land on the, on the lower end of that, that's still a very generous thing to do. Imagine giving someone enough money to, to feed someone for two weeks, to house them for two weeks, let alone consider any medical attention he may have needed for two weeks. And it wasn't just that. He said, hey, listen, whatever other expense that you incur... On, the, on behalf of this man. I'll, I'll pay it when I come back. So he leaves this open tab as if to say, hey, spare no expense. Get the man what he needs. Get him the help that he needs. I'll return and I'll cover the, the difference. Nowadays, that's a scary thing. You just hand someone your credit card and say, hey, whatever they need. You'd be like, all right, what's going on? Okay. But the generosity, the care, the compassion that he had went above and beyond what the expectation may have been. Jesus says that to love someone's neighbor, to be a neighbor, isn't just about talking the talk. It's confronting that idea that the Jews would have had to say, yeah, I, I'm buddies with them. They're my neighbor. I care for them. I love them. And then you really do nothing about it. So Jesus says it's not just talking the talk, but it's action involved. And not only is it action, but it's going above and beyond the call of duty per se. See, it's no good to talk the talk as the Jews did, but it was necessary to prove it with action. Much like our faith today. Think of James who says this, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. 
Meaning it's impossible to separate the two from each other. If you have faith, your actions will demonstrate it. They will prove it. You cannot demonstrate your faith apart from actions. They go hand in hand. And so Jesus says that to love God, our actions must support it. He says for us to love our neighbor, our actions must support it. See, the lawyer had gone in with the intention of trapping Jesus. But instead, he had it all turned back around on him at the end. And Jesus made him his own judge. Jesus had set him up where the man held all of his confidence. And he rocked that footing something fierce by exposing that man's pride. By expanding that neighborhood. And enhancing the standards all for the purpose that this man might truly see his sin and find salvation. See, the parable of the Good Samaritan is not just a parable to teach us to be nice to other people. But Jesus is doing evangelism here. He's witnessing to this man that he might find faith. And you might wish that at the end of this, Jesus says, you go and do likewise to this man. And you you'd almost hope that the next verse would be, and this man fell to the ground, much as in uh, Luke chapter 18, where Jesus shares the parable of the tax collector and the, the Jew, right, where they, one is praying, and the, the tax collector comes, and instead of saying, hey, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like all these other people, that I'm better, the tax collector comes, and he falls, and he beats his chest, and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But you don't see that. Who knows what the the outcome was for this lawyer. The next thing we have is the story of Mary and Martha. It jumps straight to that. You can imagine this man left thinking and pondering. Huh. That didn't go anything like I expected it to. As a matter of fact, he was probably a little embarrassed in the company of other religious leaders, and here he's had everything turned on himself. Maybe, maybe he just got out of there. Who knows? But for us today, see, Christ showed the ultimate in loving God and loving his neighbor when he gave himself up for us on the cross. See, we were the Samaritans, the enemies of God. The scripture says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He showed the greatest example of what it means to love God and to love your neighbor. And so as Christians today, as a believer today, I don't stand before you to tell you, hey, you can't go and show mercy like Jesus says to do when he says, you go and do likewise. But because God has shown mercy so richly on us, we can go and show mercy on others. As Christ has loved us, go and love your neighbor. Be that neighbor. Show mercy. Show grace. Because we've been shown it above and beyond what we could ever imagine to show to somebody else. Put on the Spirit of Christ and go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this challenging parable. 
But Lord, we so appreciate it to see that the matter of one's heart is so important. And Lord, it would be foolish of us to say that we don't ever struggle with our own pride. That we don't ever struggle with saying, look at me, I've done so much. But Lord, I pray that as you did in this conversation with this lawyer and you reversed the trap in many ways and helped him to see his sin for what it was, to see how he really had come up short. God, I pray that we would be humbled as well. That instead of looking at the righteousness in our own lives and saying, look at what I've achieved, look at what I've done, but God, that we would look at it and say, praise be to God for it's your righteousness in us. Father, I pray that we would take the time to truly love those around us, to to love our enemies, to put their interests above our own, to follow your example that you gave for us in the life of Jesus going to the cross for us, that as we've been shown mercy, we might show mercy to others. Lord, I pray for each of us who are here, that this week, as we seek to do this, as we follow your will to do this, that as the, the temptations and the attacks of the devil to, to stop us, the, that extra bit of anger that we may experience this week, that we wouldn't fall prey to it, but that we would stand confident and stand bold in the redemption that you've given, that we would claim the righteousness of Christ, that though we may feel wronged and though we may feel inconvenienced, we would go that extra mile. God, help us to be good neighbors to all that we come in contact with, that we would be living examples, walking testimonies of your love and your mercy that you've shown us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond.